0: Returning to the Beatitudes after a hiatus of several months, picking up the fifth Beatitude. For those of you who have not been part of this study, we began a uh, Harmony of the Gospel series uh, a couple of years ago, and we've had some interruptions in the process. But if you want to catch up to us, you can go online at our website, you can pick up the passages and the teachings or you can just simply buy some CDs out of our uh, bookstore. They're available to you. More particularly, the series on the Sermon on the Mount, I think would be significant for you to be apprised of. Uh, So as we resume our study, we come to the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I think it's important to remember some things as we anticipate picking this study back up, I think it's important to remember that the Christian gospel, that which we profess, that's which, which the Bible sets forth for us, the Christian gospel places all of its primary emphasis, its primary emphasis, that's a key thing, on being rather than doing. Do you understand the difference? It puts a greater weight on our attitude over our actions, in other words, on what you and I are rather than what we do. Jesus in these Beatitudes is describing character, disposition. He's gonna talk later about actions, but for now it's character and disposition. It is who I am. Are I really a Christian? Has there been a internal transformation? The fundamental point is that a Christian is something before he or she does anything. And we have to be Christians before we can truly act as Christians. Am I making sense? Let me put it to you this way, do you control your Christianity, or does your Christianity control you? What do you think? Should we have a vote? How many believe you control your Christianity? How many believe your Christianity should be controlling you? A lot of you aren't voting. The truth is, if you are truly Christian, then your Christianity must, of necessity, control you. Just like before you were a Christian, as a non-Christian, you have a sin nature that, what, controls you. Isn't that true? You become a Christian, you're set free from that sin nature, you're given a new nature, and that new nature, therefore, then should control you. I'm to be dominated by the truth of the gospel because I have been made a Christian by the operation and the power of the Holy Spirit who's come to take up residence in me. It's all by faith because I believe, I I heard, I believed. God took up residence. He honored my belief. He honored my faith and he's changed me. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. He is in control, not me. His Spirit controls me, and he does so at the very center of my life. Paul will say it another way in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. So in effect, if you are truly born again, if the Spirit of God lives in you, who's in control? He is. He's in control. Now you and I might feel out of control at points. We say, ah, and give way to fear and panic and so forth. But the reality is, who's actually in control? God's in control. Does he have everything under control? Is he sovereign? Is he at work? Does he have a plan? Does he have a purpose? Okay, my flesh can get wobbly, can't it? But I have to bring myself back to a knowledge of the truth. My life must be, what, dominated by the truth. He's in control. He's in control. I can trust him. The Christian faith, you see, is not simply a veneer on the surface of my life. No, it's something that has been happening at the very core, at the very center of who I am as a person. God begun a good work, he continues that good work and he will bring it to completion. Isn't that exciting? He's in control, he knows what he's doing. He is the perfect father who is sovereignly at work. Did anybody have trust issues? Every hand ought to go up. <laughs> See, the challenge is for us to really trust him. He gives us all this testimony about himself. He, he shows us his faithfulness again and again and again from the very inception of creation. The whole record is of his faithfulness. And we read it and we read it and we go, wow, 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 maybe I really can trust him. Really, he is worth, he is good. And so for those of us who are still in this weak flesh, we can exhale. We can exhale. God's got everything under control. That's good news, isn't it? See, that's why the New Testament talks about this concept of new birth. And it's not just a philosophical concept. It's it's the reality of of being born again. Jesus talks to Nicodemus in the third chapter of John's Gospel about being born again. A familiar passage to all of us. About being redeemed and becoming a new creation. About receiving a new nature. You only realize that new nature when you're sick of your old one. (laughs) Yuck! I hate myself. I hate what I do. I hate this. I hate this. I wish I were different. You can be different, can't you? Be born again. Again, the Apostle Paul spells this out for us in, in a marvelous verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, that means if you're in this intimate, bonded relationship with him, That's why marriage is such a marvelous example and is used as an example in the Bible about relationship with God. Because when you're married, you become one. You're you're bonded together. There's a miracle that happens. And so the same thing is of the new birth. If anyone is in Christ, if he's bonded to Christ, he is a what? New creation. And the exciting news is that the old has gone and the new has come. All the old stuff is gone. The old stuff is gone. I'll never forget when I was born again, I knew nothing of this stuff. I knew nothing of it. I just knew that I was miserable, sick of myself, uh, grieved, and on and on and on. And I just said, okay, I give, I give. I know you're there. I don't know what you want, but I'm going to find out and I'll do it. That's how I got saved. I went to bed that night. Next morning, I woke up. Ooh. Ooh, something's different. I thought for sure, uh, just you know, it's just one of the days when you wake up on the right side of the bed, you know, when things are going to go well for you that day. Do those days always last? No. You think it's just a phase, okay? So I thought, I feel great. I feel great, and I thought surely this is going to pass. It just got better and better and better, and then I found myself doing this. Believe me, if you knew me then, you would. this would be the last thing you could ever possibly imagine me doing. I've had people over the years come up the top of the stairs and say, I heard you got religion. I had to come find out for myself. <laughs> Some actually became members of our church. See, this is something that happens to a person at the very center of that person's being. It's a miracle. And then it controls every aspect of our being. Our thoughts, our imaginations, our outlook, and then as a result, our behavior, our actions. You know, as we, as we live our ordinary daily lives, whether we realize it or not, we are in fact declaring all the time exactly who we are, don't we? People watch. They watch. Now, if you have had uh, the uh, boldness to declare your Christianity, and people at your job or your school or whatever know you're a Christian, are they going to watch you? Oh, yeah. They're going to watch you for a couple of reasons. One, they're going to watch you to see if, there's, if this is really real, if there's a consistency, and they can have some hope. And then the flip side of that is they're going to watch you to watch you trip up and fall and make a fool out of yourself, so they can say, eh. But the point is, as we live our ordinary daily lives, we are, in fact, declaring all the time what we are, whether we are, in fact, poor in spirit whether we mourn over sin, whether we are meek, whether we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and whether we are merciful or whether we are not. The whole of our life is an expression, a proclamation, rather, of what we really are. And as we look at this portrait of the true Christian, that Jesus paints for us in these Beatitudes, we are forced to examine ourselves and ask ourselves these simple questions. Am I truly poor in spirit? Do I mourn over sin? Am I meek before God and my neighbor? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful? Now there's eight Beatitudes. The first four, I think it's interesting, the first four really uh, deal with the inner part, what we are. The second four, as we'll engage these over the next weeks, the second four are expressions or manifestations of what we are. So they speak more about what we do based on what we've become. Does that make sense? Now, the particular question for us this morning is, are we merciful? Are we merciful? Now, showing mercy is not something that is characteristic of those who are proud, self-righteous, or judgmental. Would you agree? To most people today, showing mercy, think about this, showing mercy can be in the same category as love. By that I mean, showing mercy, showing love, is reserved for those who what, show that virtue to us. We love those who love us. We show mercy to those who show mercy to us. But that attitude Jesus condemns clearly If you look at the latter part of chapter 5 of Matthew, just turn there with me, verse 43. Is it easy to love those who love you? Is it easy to show mercy to those who show mercy to you? Oh, yeah, we love that. Well, what does Jesus say about that? Now, remember, this is is what most people typically do. This This is the pattern that fallen human beings find themselves in. Jesus says in in chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That typically was what went on and what goes on in people's lives today. That's what common sense is. That's what makes sense. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. That last phrase is key. Because if you're someone who is loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, giving evidence that you're not the same old yourself, you give evidence that you are in fact born again. You are a child of the living God. You're sons of your Father in heaven. Are you tracking with me? Verse 46, he says, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So if we love other people or we love people who love us and we greet people who greet us and we're friendly with those who are friendly with us and we show mercy to those who show mercy to us, what's the big deal? The pagans do that. The tax collectors, the dregs of that culture do that kind of thing. And further, there are people who have interpreted this beatitude on mercy in another way that is just as shallow, just as selfish, and just as humanistic. They maintain that being merciful causes those around us, especially those to whom we show mercy, to be merciful to us. In other words, mercy given will mean mercy received. After all, isn't that what it says? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be what? Shown mercy. The logic, however, doesn't follow. For those people, showing mercy to others amounts to nothing more in reality than a self-seeking effort. Most of us have heard this platitude or maybe thought it or maybe even used it. If people see us care, they'll care. You ever heard that? If people see us care, they'll care. Is that true? You think? Eh, I don't think so. The Bible doesn't teach that, nor does life support that thesis. People see you care, they could care less. I mean, if, 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 if we really cared and, and people saw our example and they cared too, would we be living in a better world? Yeah. God works that way, but the world does not work that way. The world does not reciprocate in kind, goodness for goodness, love for love. God will. With God, there's always appropriate reciprocation, and he reciprocates with interest. He does. Jesus tells us, he says, give and it will what? Be given to you. How will it be given to us? Pressed down, shaken together, running over, be poured into our laps. Does that sound like with interest? Isn't that exciting? You can't get that from the world. The world doesn't do that, but God does that. If we honor God, God says he will honor us. If we show mercy to others, especially to his children, he will show even more abundant mercy to us. How many would say, I need more of God's mercy in my life today? God be merciful to me. Yes. We need his mercy every day, abundantly so. Now certainly he's already shown his abundant mercy in saving us and forgiving us and giving us new birth, right? But we still want that mercy every day. But see, that's not the way of the world. People are not naturally inclined to repay mercy for mercy. This fifth beatitude does not teach that mercy to men brings mercy from men, but that mercy to men brings mercy from God. If we are merciful to others, God will be merciful to us, whether other men are or are not. You see, it's all from God, just as in the other Beatitudes. It's God who gives the kingdom to those who are poor in spirit. It's God who comforts those who mourn. It's God who gives the earth to the meek. It is God who gives satisfaction to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those who are merciful will be shown mercy from God, from God. Now what is mercy exactly? Mercy is, the basic meaning is to give help to those in need, help to the afflicted, help to the helpless, rescue the helpless. It's simply compassion in action. Compassion in action. Can you have compassion without action? Can you feel sorry for somebody, feel pity for them and not do anything? Sure, we do all the time. But mercy is is that compassion, it's that pity but it results in action. Jesus, in speaking about this mercy, is not speaking about some detached sentiment that is unwilling or unable to help those for whom there may be sympathy or pity. Nor is he speaking of false mercy. He's not speaking of some kind of feigned pity or sympathy that gives help only to salve maybe a guilty conscience or to impress others with our appearance of piety and virtue. In other words, we, as human beings, we typically do things just to reflect glory back to us. And it's not a passive, a simple passive, silent concern, which though maybe genuine, doesn't give any kind of tangible help. Mercy. Mercy is a genuine compassion. And it's genuine and expressed in help. Selfless concern expressed in selfless actions and deeds. Jesus says, in effect, the people in my kingdom, my disciples, are not takers, but rather they are Givers. They're not takers. They're givers. They're my disciples. They follow me. I didn't come to take. I came to what? Give. So my disciples are not takers. They're givers. They're not pretending helpers, but they're practical helpers. They they go throughout the world and they they help. They help. They help. They help. Because they've learned to trust and lean on, on my resources. I, I own it all. I've got it all. And if, if you'll trust me and you'll go out and help, you'll find that I'll provide the resources. Energy, strength, wisdom, material resources, whatever is required. They are, con- they are, are, are mercy givers. They're not condemners. These are my disciples. Wow. Mercy is simply meeting people's needs. Whether it's feeding, it's not just feeling compassion, it's not just sympathizing, but it's giving a helping hand. Whether you're going to give food to the hungry person or you're going to comfort the person in grief and bereavement, whether you will forgive the offender, or you supply companionship to the lonely. A lot of lonely people. The parable of the good Samaritan. We're all familiar with that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. This is a marvelous example, I think, of this giving of mercy. The Samaritan, many of you are aware that Samaritans, Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. And I think this is why Jesus picks out and, and, and talks about a Samaritan. Samaritans were basically half-breeds. And uh, they lived in Samaria, which was north of Judea. The Jews looked at them as, as uh, unclean. They had nothing to do with them. They were vile people. And uh, so Jesus says, there's a Samaritan. And he was on a journey. and As he was on this journey, he sees a man who, by the side of the road who apparently was beaten, robbed, and probably left for dead. The Samaritan stops. Now presumably the guy that was beaten was a Jew. So the Samaritan stops, goes across the road. The idea is he goes out of his way. He's on his journey and he goes out of his way to where the beaten man was laying. Jesus says, others, notably a Levite and a priest, the people you would think would show compassion and help. Others had seen that man, but passed by on the other side of the road, avoided him clearly. Now, they may have felt some compassion or some pity, yet they did nothing to help this guy. But here's the different man, a Samaritan, who shows mercy. Stops himself in his journey, interrupts his agenda. Goes across the road and helps this guy. Does he give him tangible help? I mean, does he really help the guy? He didn't just go over and say be warmed and fed. No, he 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 picks the guy up. He binds up his wounds. He he carries him to an inn. He he takes care of him. He provides for him. He just goes the extra mile if you will. That's being merciful. That's being merciful. It's not only feeling pity or compassion, it's actually doing something to relieve the situation. How easy it is for us to see somebody in need and say, gosh, that's 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 so bad. And we're on our way. Christians. Christians. We we have our schedule. I've got to be someplace. I'm in a hurry. My agenda is more important. And yet God, God deigns to interrupt your agenda, <laughs> to interrupt your, your day. <sighs> and that's just like God, interrupt my day. That we go out of our way. Do we attend to that need? Now, for most of us, we say, well, you know, somebody else, somebody else will probably come along who has more time and, and more expertise and is better suited and I'll just, I'll just pray for him. God showed you. He showed you. So the Samaritan, I think, is a great example of mercy. But yet, the Samaritan is a picture of what? God himself, who Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, Describes God as being rich in mercy. Rich in mercy. And he's so rich in mercy that he makes us alive with Christ even when we're dead in our sins and our transgressions. He is merciful. God looked down. He saw our pitiful condition. Pitiful condition. He saw that we were slaves, literally slaves to sin. We were captives in the domain of darkness. We couldn't break out. No matter how much psychotherapy we get. I'm serious. It's, we're slaves to sin. Slaves in the domain of darkness. Slaves to the way of the world. That's our condition. It is a pitiful condition. He saw our suffering. And yet, in spite of all of our sin-breaking, all of our law-breaking, if you will, in spite of all of that, our condition was what moved him to action. Again and again, you read in the New Testament, Jesus had compassion. He saw the need. In spite of the law breaking, he saw the need. He was moved with compassion. He did something. And God does something. What is it that God did? What action did God take when he, when he saw our condition? He sent somebody. Who did he send? His only son. He became a man to set us free. He's the only one that had the power to break sin. He's the only one that could save us from the domain of darkness. He's the only one that could open our eyes to the ways of the world that keeps us captive to this stuff. He sent his only son. God was moved to action. When is a person truly forgiven? When is a person truly forgiven? Think about that. What do you think? Anybody? Herb. Herb. When is a person truly forgiven? Stand before Christ. Okay. Close. Keith? When they accept the offer of forgiveness. But what comes before that? Repentance. When they're truly repentant. See, I I can want to forgive you. I can forgive you. But does that forgiveness really have any impact on the relationship if you don't see the need for it and you're not repentant so that you can receive it and there can be closure in the relationship? Am I making sense here? I can forgive all day long. Wives do it all the time, don't they? (laughs) I forgive you. I forgive you. They're just longing for some genuine repentance on the part of this guy. There's nothing the more delights a wife when a husband is truly repentant. I am so sorry, and that's real. I, am so, I have sinned against you. I've been so wrong. So I submit to you that a person is truly forgiven when they're truly repentant. And to be truly repentant means some things. Let me give you this kind of constellation of dynamics that I think are defined, if you will, true repentance. To be truly repentant means that I realize that I deserve nothing. I realize that I deserve nothing but death and punishment and hell forever and ever and ever. And that if I am in fact... To be forgiven, it is to be attributed entirely to the love of God and to his mercy and grace and to nothing else. I have not a leg to stand on. Let me me put it this way. These beatitudes are not random. They're not haphazard. There's a definite progression in Jesus' thoughts. It's not like he's saying, let me think, Uh, let's see. Um, uh, Less are the poor in spirit. Um, How about mourn? Is that a good one? Blessed are the mourn. He's not random, he's not haphazard. There's a progression of thought in his mind. Every beatitude follows logically the previous one. I am poor in spirit. I realize I have no righteousness of my own in which to stand. I realize that face to face to God and his righteousness, I'm utterly hopeless and utterly helpless. I can claim nothing. I can do nothing. Not only that, but I mourn because of the sin that is in me. I have come to see and see ever so clearly as the result of God's spirit working in me the blackness of my own heart. How many know that the gospel is offensive? The gospel is offensive. We think it's it's so nice. and But when you start sharing the gospel, you start talking about repentance, you start talking about the actual condition of the heart. And this is why when we use the law to help people understand the true condition, you walk them through the commandments, they go, yuck. I am that. I am that. I am that. I do that. I do that. Oh. It's offensive to our human pride. And people just recoil. No, no, I'm not that bad. I am a good person. I did that. I protested when people confronted me. I said, no, I'm Catholic. I'm a good person. I do bad things. I don't rape, pillage, and plunder. But the truth is I do in my heart. When by the power of the Holy Spirit, I see the blackness of my heart, the wickedness of my heart, I realize maybe for the first time what it is to cry out, wretched man that I am who will rescue me because I cannot rescue myself. I am a slave to this. I fight it and I fight it and it's futile. I need someone to rescue me. And to rescue me from the the violence that is within me. The desire for somebody to rescue me to be rid of this vileness. Not only that, I I find myself growing meek, truly meek. And that means that now that I've experienced this true view of myself, (laughs) nobody else can hurt me. Nobody else can insult me. I've got no pride left. You can say anything you want to me. Nothing insults me anymore. I've seen the darkest, deepest, blackest part of me Whatever you say to me can be true. It doesn't insult me. It doesn't hurt me. Nobody can say anything too bad about me. Because I've seen it. I said, you're right. You're right. I'm despicable inside. I'm just a wretch. I'm vile. I've seen myself truly for the first time. I've seen myself and my greatest enemy doesn't know the worst about me. I've seen myself as something truly hateful. And it's because of this that I find myself now hungering and thirsting for what? Righteous. I want to be right. I want to be made right. I long for it. I've seen that I can't make it happen. I can't produce it. I've tried, and I've tried to justify myself, but I cannot. It's impossible, and nobody else can do it either for me. There's only one person. I've seen my desperate position in the sight of God. This is insulting to us. It's humiliating. And our prideful nature will not accept it, doesn't want to accept it. This is why God's Spirit must convict us of this, and we must see it. And then we humble ourselves. We find ourselves truly hungering and thirsting for that righteousness which will put me right with God and will reconcile me to Him and give me that new nature and that new life that I so long for. Beloved, I submit to you, this is the essence of repentance. And when we are truly repentant, God saves us. He saves us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross. And he declares us righteous. You are righteous by faith because you put your faith in my son. You've seen yourself as you really are. And you've repented and seen your need for Jesus and we become recipients of his grace and his mercy. Shouldn't that experience then? Shouldn't that reality inevitably follow in my life and in my behavior that if I've experienced, seen that and experienced all that, that my attitude towards everybody else be completely changed? In other words, should I be judgmental and critical and superior to other people? No, I got nothing to stand on, right? So I'm dependent totally on his grace. Should I begin to see in others the same things I've saw in myself in terms of their victimization, they're victims, victims of sin and Satan and the way of this world? Should I not have genuine compassion and pity for them? I see people now as never before. I see them as lost and hurting and deceived pained, and desperately in need of grace and mercy. If I know that I'm a debtor to mercy alone, and if I know that I am a Christian solely because of that free grace and mercy of God, there should be no pride left in me. There should be nothing vindictive. There should be no insisting on my rights. Rather, as I look upon others, if there is anything in them that is unworthy or that is a manifestation of sin, I should have this great sorrow for them in my heart. Compassion. Because I have experienced God's mercy, I am to have great concern for those who do not experience His mercy. Oh, would you know God? Would you know His forgiveness? Would you know His mercy? we are to have great concern for those who have not yet experienced his mercy. Concern, compassion, inaction. Some of the ways that we show mercy, I think the most obvious is through physical acts, kind of like the Good Samaritan. We see a need and we go try to alleviate the suffering and the pain in that situation. Mercy is also shown, by the way, in our attitudes towards people. Mercy does not hold a grudge. Mm. Mercy does not harbor resentment. Mercy does not rejoice in another person's weakness or failures, nor does it broadcast that person's weakness and failures for others to see. It doesn't gossip. We show mercy through our our grief over the lostness of people's lives. We grieve. Jesus, Jesus says Isaiah was a man acquainted with sadness. He's acquainted with grief. Why? Because he saw our condition. He wept over Jerusalem. But he did something. Motivated by mercy, we are to be willing, in fact, to confront others. To confront them about their sin. Why? So that they would maybe come to God for salvation. That's hard. Sometimes we'll confront people because we're judgmental and critical of them, rather than confronting them because we love them. Because we see them as lost. We understand their condition. We've been there. So I've come to you. I'm coming to you. I'm going to talk to you. Hear me. Or we'll confront an erring brother or sister rather than just ignore them. Mercy dictates that we do that. If I'm to be merciful. It's simply cruel and merciless to say nothing and let the harm continue. Isn't that true? Somebody should say something. You Our mercy can be measured also by our prayers. Think about that. Our mercy can be measured by our prayers, our prayers for the unsaved, our prayers for believers who are walking in disobedience as we continue to pray. We continue to intercede. We intercede. We're doing something. Beloved, if we have received from a holy God unlimited mercy that in fact cancels our unpayable debt of sin, we who had no righteousness but were poor in spirit, mourning over our load of sin in beggarly helplessness, wretched and doomed, meek before Almighty God, hungry and thirsty for righteousness we did not have and could not attain, it surely follows that we should be merciful to others. Let me ask this simple question. Are you merciful? Are you merciful? Is there somebody right now in your life that you could show mercy to? Is there some situation in which you could see yourself bring about pity or compassion in some, some form of action? Do you see others in great need as victims and dupes of sin and Satan and the way of this world. Even maybe those who offend you. (laughs) I read someplace that if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy is thirsty, I don't know. I read it someplace. Would you be like the Good Samaritan? Would you be like the Good Samaritan? Or rather, would you be like Jesus, who took the very nature of a servant? Or maybe you would be like your Heavenly Father, who is rich in mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Amen. Something to think about? I think so, for all of us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for your mercy to us. God, thank you for opening our eyes and showing us our real, our real need. Thank you for delivering us from a critical and judgmental and prideful attitudes. Thank you for making us more like you. Thank you for the privilege of ministering your grace and your love and your mercy to others in need. Thank you, Lord, for the church, the healing environment, the restoring environment that the church is. God, thank you for giving us a part to play, for teaching us. Thank you that you give us your spirit who empowers us to actually be merciful. And Thank you, Lord, for the rich reward that comes back to us For you said, blessed, blessed are those who are merciful. Thank you, Father. Help us, O Lord, in all these things. Give us eyes to see the needs out there, needs around us. Lord, that we can indeed show mercy and you be glorified. Amen, church? Some of you maybe need to make some decisions.